Hello, everyone. This is Karin Takar, and welcome to the Zenergy podcast. Over the past decade, India has done an impressive job of integrating renewable energy into its energy mix. For this Fulbright podcast series, I sought to investigate the enabling factors and potential of India's global leadership in renewable energy with the focus on solar. This Fulbright series is broken down into four seasons. In this season, through conversations with leaders who have been instrumental in developing the Indian renewable energy sector, we will highlight how India has managed to integrate 35 gigawatts of solar in just a span of 10 years. We will also explore what these leaders believe the key challenges to be as this sector further develops. In this episode, I will be speaking with Arunaba Ghosh, the founder and CEO of the Council on Energy, Environment, and Water, as well as a founding member of the Clean Energy Access Network. CEW has been anointed as South Asia's leading energy and environmental think tank, and the Clean Energy Access Network has been instrumental in helping to organize and catalyze India's rural energy access space. In this episode, we will explore Arunaba's beliefs on how to attract long-term financing to the rural energy market, and also how the U.S. can help partner with India for the global development of renewable energy. Thank you so much, Dr. Ghosh, for taking the time. And I found sometimes when I'm doing research prior to engaging in the interview, something really strikes me as very interesting and hits me on a personal level. And I was reading an interview you did with Live Mints, and they asked you about whether there are any books that you particularly enjoy reading or go to in times of reflection and things like this. And you responded that you love this book called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And I got introduced to the book a few years back through listening to a bunch of interviews with a lot of business leaders in the U.S. And a lot of them also refer to this book. So I was just curious to ask you, first, I'd love to hear like when you got introduced to this book and how it has helped you in your own journey, professional or personal or whatever. Well, thanks for reaching out to me, Karan. On meditations, actually, no one introduced me to it. I stumbled upon it. I, I read very widely. And I came across it. As you're saying, there are a lot of people who read it and then talk about it. And I think what strikes me about the book is that it's written by somebody who is in a position of supreme power and yet is deeply reflective and mindful and meditative. And it suggests to me and resonates with me because one, it suggests that no one is infallible. Second, that those with responsibility, in fact, those with greater responsibility have to be even more mindful of their actions, their thoughts, their words. And, uh, and thirdly, it, a lot of the issues that Emperor Max Aurelius writes about are sort of more germane in nature in terms of the kinds of 
ethical quandaries we all come across. How do we assess our place in the world? How do we assess our responsibility? How do we not react to opponents? How do we figure out who we should listen to, who we should not listen to? How do we not jump at the first instance of any kind of bad or good happening, but take your time to reflect on it and hold it? And and of course, commentators would argue that this is one of the founding principles of stoicism. And I'm not saying I'm a stoic, but it's something that is very important for us to reflect on, even without being a stoic or being categorized or put in one bucket or something. One of the most important passages that I always loved in that book is not to know what the world is, is to be ignorant of where you are, not to know why it's here, is to be ignorant of who you are and what it is. Not to know any of this is to be ignorant of why you're here. But what are we to make of anyone who cares more about the applause of such people who don't know where or who they are? So really, it's it's mm-hmm. telling us to, you know, that the answers actually lie within deep seeking. What are some practices that you have that helps you find who you are? It's probably a broad set, but I was just personally curious as to. No, I have, I have, I've always been someone who's tried to be mindful of what I do. And at the end of a calendar year, I reflect on what has been, not what's been achieved, what have I attempted and, you know, how have I grown? I do the same around my birthday, which actually happens in the in the middle of the year, in, in June. So it's almost every, in a way, every six months I'm doing a reflective thing. And I write down, I, I write down what's working, what's not working. I do meditation every day. I do, that's a shorter exercise, mm-hmm. about 10 to 20 minutes. But yeah, these are just, specific mm-hmm. exercises that you do. And of course, then I try to keep fit, whether it's an exercise a workout or it is yoga every day of the week. So again, healthy body helps with, you know, an active mind. So yeah, my biggest tool for me is actually the ability to, or the attempt to keep connecting dots. Because I believe a lot of things are connected to one thing or the other. So when you begin to spot the patterns and begin to understand different nuances, different perspectives, mm-hmm. it gives you a better sense of where your own standing is. For sharing, that was really interesting. And now just moving towards the rural energy access space, which this series is largely based on. And of course, you founded CEW, but also, I know that you were a founding member of the Clean Energy Access Network. I want to ask, what were the objectives behind setting up this network? I think it was six years ago. And like, how did that process of actually setting it up unfold? Did you have to convince a lot of people to like stakeholders or what did that look like? So in fact, the work for the Clean Energy Access Network began eight years ago. At that time, CEW was only was actually just about two years old as an organization. And one of our objectives, of course, was to increase access to energy and access to clean energy and use our analytics and our understanding or our analysis of policy and policy development as a way to nudge progress in the right direction. 
at the same time, we kept feeling, or at least I kept feeling that we still did not understand ground reality very much because if you looked at government of India documents, they were very much supply side. There was about by 2030, we are going to have X hundred thousand megawatts of power supply and this will be the mix. And, and all of that is important. But I could never see what is the perspective of the household here. Who are we serving? Whose problem are we solving? And that me to connect up with people in the field who are trying to deliver energy services, particularly in rural areas where there's a great degree of electricity and cooking energy deprivation. So one colleague of mine and I, we headed out into rural India and we started going and visiting these firms. And when I say firms, you have to understand, or your listeners have to understand, we're talking about very, very small enterprises with maybe four or five employees, but who are trying to capture opportunity in a few villages. Some of them were larger. Some of them had been around for 10, 15 years, who had footprint in more than one province in the country. And we tried to understand what are the problems that they are solving and what are the problems they themselves face as, as enterprises. If the large utility scale grid is not coming and reaching the, the households, what are the other alternatives that are coming up? Are they microgrids? Are they solar home systems? Are they small wind turbines? Are they micro hydro projects? Are they biomass to energy projects? And we went around understanding that ground reality. And it struck me as I was doing this that there was a lot of narrative around what they were doing, but there was very little analytics around what was happening in the sense that obviously when you're working in the field, you're able to tell many stories about whose life you have impacted. But when you think about lives impacted or the opportunities to impact livelihoods, you have to have a better understanding of the sector as a whole. And when we did those analytics, we realized that there were some common problems these enterprises were facing. Of course, policy was not in their favor. Policy favored large-scale, utility-scale projects and the grid being the only way to deliver electricity. They had severe problems with finance in terms of access to working capital that would help them maintain an inventory and provide the energy services. Access to finance was also necessary in a to understand the demand side of very poor households who might not have had the capital to pay off for a solar home system at one go, but were willing to take it on in, say, installments. But then your bank finance has to support that. Then there were problems on the skills side in terms of these are small startups which had an engineer who's also the entrepreneur who's also the finance guy who clearly has one partner who's trying to do the marketing. So, you know, they're running a business is actually a lot of other things and you can't mm-hmm. just rely on one person. So building, filling the skills gaps. And then there was the technology gap in terms of how do you take very high-end, high-tech products in the clean energy space, but make them robust enough and cheap enough, cost-effective enough to be deployed in very rustic, conditions in, say, rural India or a, or a small town India, where, you know, there's high degree of heat, dust, bumpy roads, and, you know, not always the best maintenance. So how do you make your product, make your product 
in a way that it is that it is able to withstand the harsh conditions of the field rather than the laboratory. And finally, the fifth gap was that these guys were working in their niches, in their villages, but there was a lack of a sense of that we are part of a larger network of firms trying to solve for the same problem. And when we did this, we discovered that there were about 250 such firms in India operating. And that I'm talking about 2012-13. So that gave us the idea to come up with a business plan for an industry platform for these entrepreneurs that would serve as a common voice to speak for these common concerns that they had on policy and finance and skills on technology or on being able to forge a cohesive network. So 2013, we published the business plan, and then we went into the sort of evangelical mode, going around trying to coax these companies to consider becoming members of this, to, to look, we started looking at philanthropic foundations, other not-for-profit institutions, think tanks, NGOs, who could become the sort of fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers of this entity, to co-create it and build mm-hmm. it up. So that took another eight, nine months of convincing, you know, standing on stools in, in restaurants to a group of entrepreneurs we've gathered in some town. They're like, would you like to become part of this? And then finally, as you said, we it was formally created in 2014. So even though the the idea uh, and, the, and the business plan, et cetera, was generated as a result of the research we were doing at CEW, we felt that as an industry platform, industry body, it may, it should have as its own independent identity, and that's how Clean came about. That makes a lot of sense. It was the first such mm-hmm. entity in the world, actually. Yeah, there were a lot of other, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, etc. A lot of similar challenges were being faced, etc. But there was no single industry One platform entity. that represented yeah. it. Yeah, super interesting. And as I was listening to a talk you gave at the Overseas Development Institute, you mentioned how that in order to, pertaining to the topic of attracting large-scale financing to the rural energy space, a potential channel to do so would be to expand the role of intermediaries beyond their traditional role, meaning like as opposed to simply connecting the money to maybe a company, having the intermediary be an aggregator of sorts and combining a bunch of these smaller projects going into Mm. the field to do so, and then Mm. taking this portfolio of projects to the larger financial institutes. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Could you expand on this concept, this concept of an intermediary as an aggregator and your views on how to attract larger scale financing into the rural energy access space? Currently, the basic principle of aggregation is twofold. One, you are able to get scale by reaching a much larger number of beneficiaries. You could get scale by giving money to one big project. But uh-huh. here, the sort of the ethical needle tilts more towards impacting a lot more households, et cetera, or beneficiaries at one go. That's one principle. The other is the principle of spreading risk, where Mm -hmm. you're not concentrating your risk in only one uh, entity which borrows money from you or 
or in whom you invest these two principles stand against the the criticism of small projects which is that the transaction cost of evaluating them doing a due diligence giving the money giving the investment and then or taking the loan repayment and all of that makes it very very transaction cost heavy which mm-hmm. is why big investors kind of veer away from small and small projects now bridging these two the potential to impact a lot of entities at one go and spreading risk as and on the other hand the the, the transaction cost challenge is the role of the aggregator right but if the aggregator on one hand is able to give a diversified portfolio that reduces the risk to the investor or to the creditor and is also able to on the other hand impact a large number of households and do it in a way that the transaction cost comes down because it takes on upon itself the ability to do that due diligence then you actually potentially have a win win now of course on paper that sounds or intuitively that sounds right but in practice that still is difficult because financial systems are not always geared towards helping out those who need money flows uh, not where the sun shines the most money flows or circulates within capital rich regions your econ 101 will tell you money should flow from capital rich to capital poor regions to get higher return but actually money keeps circulating in capital rich regions so you have to break that cycle and that's where whether you call it aggregation warehousing etc comes in the next big issue here is what kind of projects are we aggregating are we aggregating only distributed energy projects in urban areas are we also looking at rural areas are we aggregating projects that use only one type of technology or are we looking at a diversification of technologies which is solar micro hydro biomass and so forth and are we aggregating only in one country or one province or are we aggregating across countries these answers these are variables and the variables would vary depending on the type of aggregator the risk taking ability of the aggregator the capital base of the aggregator and so forth and these are strategic decisions that aggregators would have to take but regardless you choose one technology one region you know and just rural areas there is still a potential to still impact a large number of beneficiaries and reduce the risk profile and i wish if we begin to now square this logic with what i believe is going to be an increasingly distributed energy system in the world because technology will make the users the demand side much more in control of energy use energy sources and the appliances that mm-hmm. use this energy then we are actually going to enter a world where distributed energy providers and consumers are going to be gradually coming into the majority and therefore the role of such aggregators will become even greater i think the period of large entities in certain countries just one energy utility is now kind of coming to a close and it's maybe a matter of one or two decades before the energy system is going to look very different and it's better to prepare yourself for it so you have the energy technology people you have the 
fintech people who might who will have to develop platforms that can facilitate these transactions. You have the regulators who have to become much more nimble, and you have the consumers who will also become you know consumers. So I think there's going to be a lot of disruption at different parts of the cycle, but it also opens up a whole new opportunity for new jobs, additional jobs, distributed rooftop creates seven times more jobs in India than utility scale solar. And utility scale solar creates more jobs than coal. So whether we're looking at jobs, whether you're looking at growth, or whether you're looking at sustainability, I think there'll be a big role in the distributed energy space. And just wrapping it up now, because I know we don't have much time, but I really want to ask you this, as I know you were on the India-US task force. Uh, with the Center for American Progress. And I actually worked or interned there a few years back. But as a Fulbright scholar from the U.S. to India, who's really getting engaged in energy issues in India and is looking to kind of bridge a further partnership between the U.S. and India, I would really appreciate hearing your views on what role you think the U.S. can play in terms of partnering with India specifically in the renewable energy space. Could you talk a little bit about this? Sure. I've been part of the India-US Fact 2 dialogue on climate change and energy since it began in 2010. So now it's been exactly 10 years, just short of 10 years that we've been having this dialogue every year that we had our last set of calls just a couple of weeks ago. But to answer your question, Karan, I mean, I would have had many types of answers during the course of this past decade. But to answer your question now, I would say that what the U.S. can do for India Mm -hmm. in energy and climate change and energy access is entirely dependent on what the U.S. wants to do for itself. And let me just expand on that for a second. Ten years ago, India was just about getting started on its national solar mission. At that time, India had less than 20 megawatts of solar power. Now, India has more than 87,000 megawatts of solar and wind deployed. This is the story of one decade. Also, 10 years ago, the U.S. was in the middle of what was called its Sunshot program, where technology developers and innovators were being encouraged to bring down the cost of solar from more than $4 a watt to less than a dollar a watt. Now, this was the period of focus on technology. That here's a country where, which has a lot of energy deprivation can rejoin hands. Over the course of this decade, many other changes happened. One, India significantly ramped up its targets for renewables. In 2015, it announced we'll aim for 175 thousand megawatts of renewables by 2022. Last year in New York at the Climate Action Summit, the Prime Minister announced that we are aiming for 450,000 megawatts, which will make India the largest renewable energy market in the world. So in these past about five or six years, it's become more a story about finance, not just technology. It's become where will the large institutional investors the pension funds of in the United States or in Europe, the insurance funds, the, the large capital investors, where are they going to get big markets? Where are they going to get assured returns? 
and mm-hmm. it's in the emerging economies emerging economies like india where energy demand is still on the upswing not like the us where the energy demand is flat but if that money could be invested in clean energy infrastructure you actually service that growing energy demand you fill the energy access gap but you also create a cleaner infrastructure and you get higher returns so that brings us to the present if it was technology in the early part of this decade of the last decade and it was if it's been about finance and the cost of finance in the second half of the last decade what will the decade of the 2020s bring that really depends on how much the us remains invested in its own energy transition in its own shift towards renewables because that's where we will now look at not just technology and not just finance but business model because as i was answering just earlier the business models of energy will change the nature of the enterprise in energy will change the scale of the enterprise in energy will change the distribution of energy production and consumption will change that nimbleness that is needed will come from innovations in financial technology in energy technology in behavioral sciences in being able to tap large volumes of capital and then funnel it into very small projects etc and if the us is not going to keep persisting with its own energy transition it will miss out on this next phase of the shape of enterprise and energy that will change in emerging markets like india so it's no longer really how great your module and your panel on wind turbine it's no longer just about how much capital you have it's really about are you looking over the horizon to spot the business opportunity in servicing the energy demand of highly aspirational but still energy deprived people you begin to crack that then the us and india can work together in southeast asia can work together in sub saharan africa can work together even in europe or north america where this combination of high tech but small bits of finance with innovative nimble business models can actually begin to service a lot of small businesses in the united states we've recently launched a program at cdw called powering livelihoods which is basically about it's a 3 million dollar program we launched to invest in companies in rural india that use distributed energy to not light up a home but to power up rural enterprise and our estimation is that this market in farm and non farm applications of clean energy in rural in the rural economy in india alone is upwards of 50 billion dollars so mm-hmm. this market will not get serviced by the energy architecture of the 20th century so really what the us can do with india is tap into this vast market at the so called bottom of the pyramid but which really opens up a whole new set of opportunities for all sorts of innovation as i just described thank you so much dr gosh for your time that was sure, thanks again khan i hope you enjoyed that episode and do check out the show notes for more information on my guest 
See you next time. 